So if you open your Bibles to um, so, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 25, if you're going to use the Pew Bible as I am, it is page uh, 247. I will read some of it, but I'll tell a lot of it as well. And so I just want to encourage you to find it and uh, maybe read it this week as the Bible tells it. I'll kind of maybe add some embellishments to it along the way. Uh, the first verse opens up with Samuel dying. Now, if you remember with me from parts, uh, Kings part one and then part two, Samuel, it's okay if you don't know that name because you're new to church, that's all right. Uh, Samuel was kind of like the preacher in Israel. He's kind of like the Billy Graham or the Joel Osteen or whatever name that you think of as being sort of the big, most famous guy in town. That's who Samuel was. If you wanted to hear a word from the Lord, you would go to Samuel. And Samuel was uh, connected to both David and Saul in important ways. Ways. And so after Samuel dies, David moves south or, or goes south to Paran. Now I say that and you think of what? Nothing, right? Because you don't know what Paran looks like, obviously. We don't know the geography as well as if I say up north. What do, you, do, you, do you have an image in your mind if I say go up north? You kind of think of lakes, you might think of trees, you might think of sprawling nothingness forever and ever and no cell phone signal, right? All of that, you think of up north because we have it. Paran is sort of like that. If you're a 12-year-old child sitting around a campfire and somebody's telling you, like, let me tell you the story of the two idiots and Abigail. And they're like, oh, okay, tell us. David went down to Paran and immediately... In your mind, you're thinking, you're thinking of what that looks like. And I want to kind of give some of that to you. And so, so here is Israel right there, right? This is, this is Israel. And right here is Paran. Right there is Paran. So you kind of got Egypt and the Arabian Peninsula. And so you got Paran right here. It's a wilderness, arid region. This is what it looks like. David goes down to Paran. Now, this is a great place to hide out because no one wants to go there, right? Do you want to visit? You want a vacation here? No, right? <laughs> this area stinks. Like, this is, this is terrible. And so, and so this is where David goes down south, and, he, and, he's, and he's hiding out there in Paran. In verse 2, we're introduced to a wealthy man who is living in a completely different place. We read in verse 2 that there is this wealthy man, and he lives in Moan, and he has this business. He's very wealthy, and he has this business out in, in Carmel. Carmel is a, is a mountain range more than just one mountain. So this is kind of a close-up. So here's, here's Israel right there, right? And here's a close-up of it. You, Jerusalem, you might have heard of that before. You got the Mediterranean. Way up here, this right here. This right here is the Carmel Mountain Range. So he has a business there in Carmel, and he's got 3,000 sheep, which is a lot of sheep. And he has 1,000 goats. This is what Carmel looks like. So you're thinking of Carmel. Right? Immediately, David, where is David down? David's down, sad Paran, right? If you live here for a while, eventually you're going to get hungry because there are no apple trees or anything else, right? And so, so you've got these two, these two images in your mind. You have David down in Paran, and you have that rich guy hanging out, right, in the green places, and he has all of these sheep, and it is sheep shearing season, which means that not only is he already wealthy, but he's about to accumulate more wealth because, you know, 3,000 sheep is a lot of sheep. That's a lot of wool. He's going to make a lot of money. And we hear a little, we get a little more detail about this guy. Uh, we learn that his name is Nabal. And you didn't laugh, like you're supposed to laugh, Nabal. And I get why you don't laugh. You don't laugh because Nabal is the Hebrew word, literally picked up and dropped into English. If you read it in Hebrew, it would be Nabal. If you read it in English, it's Nabal. But the word Nabal means something like fool or foolish or stupid 
or worthless. So this guy uh, didn't have much to, his parents did not expect a great deal from him. <laughs> he was this one look at this, that's, uh, no, no, we'll call him, we'll call him good for nothing, right? That's, that's what we have in our hands here, good for nothing. And that's what we're going to call him so that we don't, we don't lose sight of how funny this name play is. We've got good for nothing. Now, good for nothing is married to a woman whose name is Abigail. Any Abigails in the room today? Any Nabals in the room today, by the way? I just, I didn't stop to ask. Any good for, we don't want to ask that question. Uh, any Abigails? Any Abigails? No Abigails? No Abigails, okay. Well, Abigail is a name that means uh, my father is pleased or my family is pleased. It's sort of like, they looked at Nabal and they said, yeah, that's, that's good for nothing. They looked at Abigail and they said, oh, yeah, this is a keeper, right? This is a keeper. And so they named her, and she grows up and she is beautiful, we read. She is beautiful and she is discerning. She's smart. But Nabal, good for nothing, he is harsh, we read. He is harsh and bad-mannered. He is bad at, 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 at life. <laughs> He's bad at life. And David hears that it is sheep-shearing season, and David and his men had kept watch over Nabal's shepherds. So they played kind of bodyguard for these guys while they were keeping the herds. And so David decides, well, it's sheep-shearing season. They're, they're taking in all kinds of money. I'm going to send my men, and we're going to request for, for some payment for the work that we did for good for nothings, his, his, his business. And so uh, David sends ten men. And those ten men go to him, and they say, listen, uh, peace to you, and peace to your house, and peace to all you have. Now, this word peace, or shalom in Hebrew, is kind of a common greeting. You would say shalom, or peace be with you, something like that, uh, to somebody as a greeting. And it means not just an absence of conflict, but it means wholeness. And so he says, I, we, we ask, we're asking God to give you blessing and wholeness in your personal life, you, and then in your family around you, and then in all of your endeavors, everything that you're up to, God give you peace. So this is a very generous beginning. In fact, what they ask for is very generous. They say in verse 8 that this is a feast day, right? And we, and we feast day, they've prepared lots of food. They've prepared all kinds of things. And he says, listen, you've already, you've guys, you've already prepared a lot of food. Just share with us some of what you have, and we'll take it back to David. Because again, remember, remember where they are, right? They're in Paran, and he's living it up, you know, there in, in Israel. And so, Give us something to take back there. And so there's no demands made. There's no, like, exactly, here, you need to give us X amount of, of, of food or whatever. Instead, uh, they just say, share with us what you have prepared for the feast day. Now, good for nothing's answer is what? Do you think it's good for something? No. Do you think he's generous? Says, oh, well, yeah, you know, of course, you helped me out. You really did. And, and here's something for your trouble. No, he doesn't. He answers harshly. Why? Because he's good for nothing. It's Nabal. He says, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. Shall I take my bread? Shall I take my water? Shall I take my meat that I have, I have gained, I have earned, I have, I have killed for my people and give it to men from I do not know where? Now I want you to see the level of insult here. 
the level of insult here, because it's threefold. First, he impugns David's family. I don't know this Jesse guy, and I don't know his kids, right? I don't know these people. They're also good for nothing. He impugns David's character. He's, you're a runaway slave. You're, you're running away from your master. You're causing all this mischief in Israel. He impugns David's work. He says, listen, I, I don't know where you came from, and I don't need your help, right? So he does almost the exact opposite of what David does. David sends men, and he says, peace to you. Nabal's answer to him is, you know, I don't know who you are, and I don't care about you. And peace to your family, I don't know your family and I don't care about them. Peace to all that you do, I don't know what you did and I don't care about what you did. Get out of my face, right? This is Nabal's answer. This is good for nothing's answer to David. Well, David's men (laughs) take this answer back. I don't want to be those guys, right, to deliver that message to David. But they do. Because generally speaking, you know, like when you are, when you are, um, when Chuck Norris asks you for something, you just give it to Chuck Norris, Right? That's just how it works. And David is Chuck Norris in Israel. He is the guy that, like, he beats everyone up. Everyone up. And so, you know, this is just a a, a bad, this shows us the level of foolishness that this guy is up to. Of course, so this message is delivered to David, and we read in verse, uh, verse 13 that David says to his men, all right, pack it up, get your gun belt on. David put his gun belt on, and off they went. And we read later on that David's intention is to kill every single male in Nabal's house. Now hold up for a second here. Because that seems a bit rash. Right? It seems like he may be over... Now, has anybody ever been cheated? Cheated, like business, or somebody, like, you loaned them money, they give you some, you know, you bought a lemon of a car. I don't know, you've been cheated before. You you know what I'm talking about? Or you're asleep. I I can't tell which. Give me something. Cheated, okay, okay. And when you were cheated, how did you feel? Cheated. (laughs) Thanks, guys. That was really helpful. Some good for nothings around here this morning. Perhaps you were, let me help you. Perhaps you were angry. Yes? Perhaps you were angry. And you were a little bit miffed. And so you said, I'm going back to that car dealership and I will kill every single one of those guys. No, because that is an overreaction. And this is what David is doing here. He is overreacting. We understand. I understand the anger, but it is a bit of an over, overreach. Now, thank God there is somebody who's smart in this story. And it is, <laughs> and all the ladies said, amen, right? Somebody is not thinking with their emotions, which is so funny because we have this kind of, this kind of uh, universe, or at least Western lie, like the men are not the emotional ones, the women are the emotional ones, right? Uh, uh, the Bible knows better. Um, my experience, of course, is also that that is, men and women are equally good at sinning, <laughs> We, no gender is a corner on the market of that, right? And so you have these guys who are, they're, I mean, they're just living out this, this anger, like, oh, man, and Abigail. So, so, uh, so uh, one of the, one of the, mess, one of the um, servants in the good-for-nothing household is smart, and he goes to Abigail, and he says, listen, listen, these men came, and they insulted Chuck Norris. I don't know, but he's probably mad. And he might be coming to exact some kind of revenge. You might want to look to this. Because everything they've said is true. 
In fact, it's, he, he says to, to Abigail, he says, when the, they were with us, they were, they were good to us. We suffered no harm from them. We didn't miss anything. There was not one misplaced piece of baggage that got lost or got stolen while we were with these guys because they acted like a wall, he says, both night and day. They lived up to their bargain. And so Abigail, um, who, if you can't tell already, is the hero of the story, springs into action. And because it's a feast day and they've prepared lots of, lots of food for their guests and for their servants, for all their household, she gathers together 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep that have already been uh, prepared and five seas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisin and 200 cakes of figs, none of which sounds good to me, but I suppose in those days that was the equivalent of pizza and Coke. I don't know. She lays them on the donkeys, and she sends them ahead. Now, think for a second, because this is shrewd. The guys are coming with their guns. They're ready to go to war. And you see a messenger first. What do you do? You, we, I've got sound effects. We're ha- that's good. <laughs> that's, you shoot the messenger. Right? We even have a phrase. That don't shoot the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. Why? Because you kill messengers. That's what happens. These guys are coming. And they see somebody coming at them. Pow. Right? They're down. And so she sends the gifts ahead. Why? Because you don't shoot donkeys carrying whatever that's figs or whatever. Right? <laughs> you don't shoot. You, you, you take that. Because you're like, oh, well, they, they, look at that. They, they got delivery for us. How nice. So you're buttered up a little bit. Right? She's smart. She's smart. This is what we do, men. Right? This is my suggestion to all you young men or, or unmarried folks. You marry up. Right? My wife's not here, so she can't amen, which is good. We planned that out. What was I saying? David, right. Okay, so David is, David is um, uh, he, he is, he, they're coming towards him. The, the gifts are coming. Abigail uh, gets on her donkey to go and meet them as well. And she gets off, before they even, before they get close enough to, you know, to shoot, to kill, uh, she gets off of her donkey and she bows before them. And so the first thing you come up upon as David, you come upon all of this delivery, right? This carry out coming your way. And then you see a beautiful woman who's, you know, there, right? Because, you know, David's a dude. And he's like, wow, that's a beautiful woman. I feel like I made that awkward and I didn't mean to be. I don't know why it kind of came out that way. I apologize. So anyway, she says, uh, as soon as she sees David in verse, um, verses 24 through uh, 31, she speaks to David and she says some important things. I just kind of want to highlight those real quick because I think it matters and I think we'll see why here in a few minutes. Abigail saw David. She hurries. She gets down off the, she falls on the David, falls on the ground before David. She bows down before him. She falls at his feet. She says, on me, verse 24, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. If you've got a Bible, underline that, right? If you are using the Pew Bible, underline it. So that's, that's, that's okay. I want you to see that. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. And I love verse 25. Let me paraphrase it. Uh, don't, don't worry about my husband. He's an idiot. <laughs> right? And all the ladies said, right? Come on. I know this has happened before. You don't have to pretend. This has happened before. They don't mind him. He's an idiot. This is, this is important. Let the trespass, in verse 28, let the trespass be uh, of your servant. So on me, again, she's reiterating again and again. Let it be counted to me. Count the offense to me. 
She steps in the way of the violence and she says, count the offense to me. And then she says something important to David in verse uh, 28. She says, uh, evil shall, the last part of that verse, evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. Evil shall not be found in you. She's, she's saying, listen, this, 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 what you're about to do is evil, and you, it shouldn't be, there should be no evil. She doesn't address directly his intentions. She doesn't address, accuse him of anything specifically. But she's just saying, listen, I, I, I have an idea of what's going to transpire, and I'm saying to you, don't let evil be in you as long as you live. And then in verse 31, my Lord, she's speaking to David as the Lord, right, shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. Right? So that when you become the king, keep, once you become the king, because everybody knows David's going to become the king eventually, you know, he's, he's the guy, and, and so when you become king, we don't want you to look back on your sin. If you act on this, if you follow through in this, look back on your sin and say, I regret that. Man, that's good application to our lives just in sin in general. Let there be no evil found in you at any point in your life. Because when you follow through on that act of evil, when you follow through on that sin, you will look back on it and you will regret it. Sin always looks good from the other side of it. And then when you go through and you actually live it out, you look back on it and you say, man, that was a bad choice. That was a bad choice. I shouldn't have followed through on that. I shouldn't have reacted Because what do we have in this story? We have a story that is built on emotional reactions. Emotional reactions. Good for nothing reacts emotionally out of selfishness, out of greed, out of pride, out of whatever there. I don't know, you get out of my face. I'm more important than you are. David reacts emotionally being angry, having his pride hurt and wanting to hurt somebody else because of it. And yet Abigail steps in the midst and she lives out a proverb which is very good. Psalm 15, or Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Jesus says something very similar. He says, come to terms quickly with the people who accuse you while you are on the way, lest the accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the jailer, and the jailer puts you in prison. In other words, Abigail is hinting here. She is moving towards grace in a situation that is marked by wrath. You know, wrath's a sin. Anger, directed, usually is a sin. Because when we turn our anger towards the things that make us angry, rarely do we ever end up invoking the righteousness of God. It doesn't produce... Think about the last time you lost your temper. The last time... Anybody willing to admit they lost their temper? The last time you lost your temper... Did anything good come of it? Did your wife or husband say, wow, I just love you so much more now, honey? Did your children say, you're such a better dad or better mom? Did your boss say, you, you, you really earning that raise, brother, right? Did your anger turn into anything good? Did that Facebook post help anyone meet Jesus, right? Or are you in a flame war with somebody across the state which you don't even really actually know or care about, right? I mean, we're built on outrage. We're outrage machines these days. It's insane. David here uh, and uh, Nabal are, are living out this activity. They're living out this outrage, and it is, um, 
Not good. Not good at all. And I think that that's what we find very alive in our culture right now. It seems everybody's kind of like on edge. Everybody's on edge. Why are we so on edge? It's like the world gotten worse. No, it's the same as it's always been. There are wars or rumors of wars. People are terrible. They're doing terrible things. What's new? What's new? But we're outraged and we're on this edge and we're instantly ready to cut down anyone who disagrees with us. I have been reading, uh, I'm doing a, 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 a book review for a publication and uh, it's, I, I guess I'll use this for short term. It's a, it's a book by a, a Black Lives Matter advocate, which isn't quite right, but, but that gets close to it. And he would make these comments throughout this book. White people, which, you know, obviously is me. <laughs> White people are guilty of X. White people are guilty of X. White people are guilty of X. And I'm always ready to say, the whole time I'm ready to say, well, hold on a second, man. Like, hold on a second. My outrage machine started going. What happens when you get that outrage machine going? You are now deaf. You're now deaf. And I can't hear this man's story anymore. And I certainly can't offer him any grace anymore. And I certainly can't learn anything about who he is anymore. Because why? Because that thud, thud, thud of my blood is pumping in my ears. And I am now, like these two idiots, good for nothing. Nothing good will come of it. And this, this snowflake business, I see this all over the place, this snowflake business, the millennials are snowflakes. Please, I've been in church a long time. I'll tell you this. I've seen more outreach from 70-year-old church folk than I have from 20-year-old college students. Don't give me that. There are things I can't share from this pulpit. Why? Because half you guys would lose your mind. Because we think with our emotions, not our minds, not our hearts, not our will, not after God, We're thinking with our emotions. We're letting those emotions run away with us. And thank God, again, we have this example of this woman, of Abigail, who is willing to stand up and say, you know what? Enough of the outrage, enough of the fighting. Let me be the cause of everything, and let me pay it out so that we can have peace. Because standing in front of Chuck Norris and his oncoming horde is a dangerous place to be. And the question for you, church, is are you willing to take that spot? Seems awfully Jesus-y to me. Seems awfully Jesus-y to me. Are we willing to take that outrage and set it aside so that we can produce righteousness? So we can hear someone's story. I heard this, um, I heard this, uh, this story from this, this lady who was, um, was, a, a, she was a, sort of a transgender lesbian thing going on there. It got complicated. Um, but she was married uh, and, and uh, her, her wife died. Of course, she was not a part of the church, walked away, didn't want anything to do with God. And her wife died. And this minister did the funeral for her wife. And he walked with her. She sat in his office. She would go every week. She said every week on Friday I would come in and we would, and we would talk. And he never brought up things I didn't want to bring up. She, he, he just let me... And she said, the reason I sort of changed my mind about the way I was living my life, the reason I came back to the church was because this minister did not assume he knew what God wanted to fix in me. That's profound. That's also very Jesus-y. You can see the speck in your brother or sister's eye, and yet you have a plank in your own eye. I've found that I am fantastic at spouting, spotting and spouting y'all's specks. And I have a lot of planks. 
One of the things I think we need to see in this text is how Abigail, again, is willing to stand in the midst of this. How important would it be for the church or how significant would it be in the church if the world looked at us instead of seeing us as contributing to the outrage machine, we were the people who said, come to the cross, come to the cross, come to the cross because there is grace, there is grace, there is grace. And in grace, there is transformation and it's painful and it asks you to forget everything and to lose everything and to give up everything. And here we all are with planks in our eyes trying to tear them out because we're all in the same spot at the foot of the cross pleading with God for the grace that is only found in Jesus Christ. The church would be something to marvel at, something to see. Something that the lost and the hungry and the people who are broken who say, I know there's something deeply wrong and I don't know what to do about it. We can say, come in, because we're still trying to figure this thing out too. But we know in Jesus there's an answer. In Jesus there's an answer. And if that was our clarion call and we forgot everything else, I think that'd be something. I think that'd be something. So as we come to kind of a Conclusion this morning, I want to wrap up this story. Oh, I should wrap up the story. I started preaching and stopped telling stories. All right, so anyway, uh, David, David says to Abigail, he says, man, I'm so glad that God sent you because I was coming for blood. And God, and God sent you and, and you, and you stopped me. And so, so there's this wonderful moment where David turned, you know, he takes what they've given, they turn around and there's peace. And she goes home and she doesn't tell her husband what happened. Any of you ladies, like, protect your husband from the truth. It was quiet. No one said amen there. Uh, So anyway, she doesn't tell Nabal. She doesn't tell good for nothing what transpired because he's drunk, you know, and he's partying. And uh, the next day she does. And his heart, it says, becomes like a stone. He has a heart attack. We might put it that way. His heart becomes a stone and he falls over and he dies. And uh, then you can read the rest of the story uh, later on. I think there's some important principles. I think three that I really want to draw forward um, right now as we come to a conclusion. I want to give these to you. Um, I didn't do that or that. Ignore that. There we go. All right. Three things. Uh, the first thing here, um, and I think this is important. Maybe I don't need to say it. I don't know what I need to say and don't need to say sometimes because there's a lot of you, and I don't know what you've heard or experienced. But the first thing I would say is this, is that women matter to God. Oftentimes, the scriptures like seem or they're portrayed as particularly anti-woman. And I want you to see that in this story, uh, who are the idiots? Ladies, go, feel, go ahead. Who are the idiots? Right? And who, are, who is the hero? Women. Abigail. Now, there's plenty of stories where the reverse is true because no gender has a market on sinfulness. <laughs> like, we're all in this together. But I really wanted to say this. The scriptures uh, understand that In Christ, there is now no longer male or female. Those things that used to divide us are now broken down by the cross. And all of us are now sharing in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, right? One God who is over all, through all, in all, and for all, right? That's an important thing to to make known, to make clear. And the second thing is this. Stop being so reactionary. Stop. 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 
It doesn't produce the kind of goodness that we're looking for. It is certainly not producing good society, certainly not a good witness for the church, and certainly not evoking and cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in your own life. So stop being reactionary. Thirdly, value and practice the peace of Christ. You remember, Jesus says, I leave you peace. And yet, how many of us just feel like there's no peace in my life? There's no peace anywhere. There's, there's fracturing, there's arguments, there's fighting. There's, there's all of this competition. I mean, th- we are the least peaceful people. And yet God has filled us with this spirit that says, you are of peace. And I think it begins with this. We have forgotten a very important biblical principle. And this is what I'm applying to my life this week. This is what I am taking home and going to try to practice Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person, every person, every person, every person be quick to hear, quick to listen to the other person's story before you have an answer for their life's problems. Quick to offer a solution to something before you listen and think through, honestly, truthfully listen. And I'm I'm convinced that this is how we get the gospel to people is you start listening to folks. You start listening to them. Quick to hear. What's the next one? Slow to speak and slow to become angry. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if the church can live out, if we can live out the gospel this week, if we can live out the example that Abigail sets for us, if we can live out something faithfully Jesus-y, it would be this, to be the people that are interested in somebody else's opinion, somebody else's story, so that we can hear them. And after knowing them, love them. And after loving them, share the gospel with them. This morning, as we come to a conclusion, if you need the gospel, if you need prayer, we'll have our elders down front. If you need to step forward and say, yes, I am willing to leave everything behind because I've decided to follow Jesus, I invite you to come forward with and stand with me as we stand and sing this last song.